When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the amazing Rico Bronya podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. Hope everybody's been enjoying their all-star week. Welcome to Rico Bronya, Evan Roberts, Pete Hoffman. So the first half of the season is over. We all know it's been a colossal failure despite the brief moment of hope during the six-game winning streak during the West Coast trip towards the end of the first half of the year. This team is sitting six games under five hundred. And if I would have told anybody that back in March before this season began, they would have thought I was nuts. They would have thought I was being way too negative to ever imagine that this team would be six games under 500. So I warn you, this is mostly going to be a depressing episode of Rico Bronia because here's what we're going to do. We're going to recap how we got here. We're going to recap the first half of the year. We will hand out awards. I will pick my Met MVP of the first half, as will Pete. We will pick out our first half Cy Young, our first half bust, like the one player who fits that bust category more than others. And then I racked my brain on this. I wrote down a whole list of my favorite wins of the season and the worst losses of the season. And then we will also kind of put our list together on why this season has failed, like our in order of why this season has failed. What is blame number one? What is blame number two? What is blame number three? I guess we can have that list go very, very far. We'll probably cut it off at some point because that list could go, you know, 30 deep if you want. And what I think is going to be interesting is I think Pete and I's list are going to be very different. I do. Like, for example, I don't want to spoil your list, Pete, but I have a feeling Billy Epler is going to be number one on your list. Like when you make the list, number one above everything else is going to be Billy Epler. Am I right? Just tell me if I'm right. Well, before this way, <laughs> you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wrong. Maybe. <sighs> you know what? Let's start with the list. All right. Okay. Let's, let's, All right let's, we'll go, let's just jump right <laughs> into this crap. I racked my brain on this, Pete, on what would be number one. Like number one reason why there's six games under 500. And I don't want to just make it a group because I know it's the starting pitching. To me, it's the starting pitching. So I can say that and just call it a day and say it's the starting pitching, but I wanted to go deeper than that and not just say it as a whole. Why is this team struggling? Why are they six games under 500? And I'm going to give you something deeper than just the collective of starting pitching. A part of me wanted to say Max Scherzer. You know, Max has a four-plus ERA, but they've won 10 of the 16 games he started, even though a lot of those losses and a lot of the games they've lost have come in the biggest games of the year. I could certainly argue Max Scherzer, but I'm not. I'm not going to put him number one. I could sort of argue Verlander. He missed the first month of the season, and then he's been very up and down. I think if I combine the two of those guys, I could certainly say that's their biggest issue. But you're going to think I'm crazy for saying this. If you look back at last year and you try to figure out, well, how the hell did they win 101 games? What if I told you 
that last year, when the quote-unquote depth guys made a start, David Peterson, Trevor Williams, Tyler McGill, Jose Budo, and Thomas Zapucki. I include all those names because those are the non-core guys that made starts last year. The guys not named Chris Bassett. The guys not named Jacob DeGrom. The guys not named Max Scherzer. When David Peterson, Trevor Williams, Tyler McGill, Jose Budo, and Thomas Zapucki started games, there were 39 games that those guys started combined. The New York Mets last year were 25 and 14. Now think about that for a second. They were 11 games above 500. When David Peterson made a start last year, the Mets were 12 and 7. 12 and 7 when David Peterson made a start. Now you go to 2023. David Peterson has certainly pitched a lot better since he's been recalled from AAA. But when David Peterson has made a start this year, the Mets are three and eight. Three and eight. He's made 11 starts. They're three and eight. And if we go down the list with, well, what about Tyler McGill this year? What about Joey Luke? You'll see that the biggest difference between last year and this year is all of those depth guys who have to make starts when they've made starts, the Mets have lost. Last year when they made starts, the Mets have won. Now, if I group Verlander and Scherzer together, then yeah, they would be the number one culprit. But I think their starting pitching as a whole has been such a problem that I'm going to look at the depth guys and how badly they've been this year compared to last year as the number one culprit for why this team is six games under 500. Could I ask you a question just to see if you have the number? It's okay if you don't. But you said there was 39 games out of 162 that, that you had to go to those depth guys. How many starts have the depth guys gotten in 90 games so far? That's a very good question, and I do have that answer, and I'm going to tell you right now. So, Tyler McGill made 15 starts this season, 15 of them, before he was optioned down to the minors. David Peterson has made 11 starts this season. Joey Lucchese made five starts this season. Jose Budo has made two starts this season. So that would be 27 plus 11. That's 38 starts that have been made from the quote-unquote depth guys. Last year, they made 39 starts. So it's it's a higher number. Like pace-wise, it is no doubt about it a higher number. And there's reason for why it's a higher number. Carlos Carrasco was on the injured list. Justin Verlander was on the injured list. Max Scherzer had a 10-game suspension. So it's definitely a higher number, but the results are very, very bad, as you can see. Yeah, they and are- also, they're also because they're being relied upon more, unfortunately. That's part of it. No doubt about it. No doubt. They're being relied upon more, but they've also pitched a lot worse. You know what I mean? Like, And it started right from the beginning. So when Tyler McGill has made starts this year, the Mets are 7-8. and eight which is not as bad as maybe you would have thought, but they are a well below 500 team when they've asked these guys to pitch. And I think what also adds up in it is that they've been so bad that that forces the bullpen to then have to pitch more innings. And that has brought down what has also been one of the weaknesses, which is the bullpen. And to me, that's probably number two, the Edwin Diaz injury and how it's impacted this bullpen. David Robertson has been brilliant this season. The rest of this bullpen has been up and down. If you had a brilliant Diaz and a brilliant Robertson, I think we're viewing the Met bullpen very different than the way we view it today. Well, uh, I agree. 
Uh, I don't know if the, the bullpen will be number two for me. Edward Diaz, I think he's too high on that list. But number one, the, the biggest issue is, yes, unfortunately, there's one person to blame. It's Billy Epler. And it's unfortunate to, to put him because I don't think he's able to make as many moves as we'd like him to. He's handcuffed by the fact that I don't, I don't think Cohen's going to allow him to make major mistakes. I don't think he's going to allow him to trade away prospects like we've talked about. He, he really won't do it. And it, because of that, he can't evaluate talent well enough. He can't make he can't make smart trades that he'd like to do to bring in some assets. So we stuck with bringing in glue pieces that don't work. He's bringing in Darren Ruffs. He's too stubborn for himself. We've talked about this over and over and over. The fact that they tried to bury Francisco Alvarez, to me, it, it he has... He does not know how to evaluate his team in any capacity, whether it's old veterans or younger younger rookies. You brought in Canna, Marte, and Escobar last year. Those on most of the other teams are like, you know, they're secondary players. They're, they're depth roles. They're not starters. And those are the guys, besides Marte, Stalin Marte is or should have been. But most of these other guys are like just depth players. They're like a step above Luis Guillorme. And we're relying on them too much rather than bringing up young kids who are shining. And and that's part of it. Slash, you want to complain about the bullpen. That's fine. I don't think he really knows how to evaluate good talent, which is why he, he, he regurgitates guys like Tommy Hunter. But keep this in mind. And I understand because I think a lot of people listening would also want to put Billy Epler towards the top of the list. If we at least find the common ground that pitching is the main reason why the Mets struggled in the first half of the year, you would also agree, and we went through it a couple of weeks ago on our off-season redo podcast, that there wasn't much that you would redo when it comes to pitching because most of it's been bad. You know what I mean? Like, it hasn't worked, and this starting pitching staff has been far worse than we would have expected, but there wasn't a lot out there where you can alter it and say, hey, but if they sign Carlos Rodon, but hey, if they sign this guy, like other than going into a time machine and saying, hey, Nate Evaldi's going to have a great year, go sign him, most of these moves, there really aren't anything that would have fixed it, starting pitching-wise. I, I I agree with that. You're, you're right. There there's a lot of moves that we went through. Like oh, it would have failed no matter what. But I still think it, it's it's dating back to the trade deadline last year. And I know it's too far to go back, but it just shows you the path of where he was going. They ran it back. They ran back the same team, spent a ton of money on basically the same team, and now have gotten a terrible result. It's like when things are going good, you can't just stay stay stay. The same. You have to but, change up a little bit. But when you look at first half Mets versus last year's Mets, their offense hasn't been as good, but it has not had the drop off that the rotation has. It's not even close. It hasn't had the drop off that the bullpens had. Not even close. So I totally get the whole running it back thing. It was a debate we had during the offseason, but their offense, like I have my list in front of me, the offense is sixth. Like, I got five things before I ever get to the offense. I mentioned the fill-in starting pitchers, the the depth guys. I mentioned Edwin Diaz's injury. Now I'll get to individual starters. Carlos Carrasco, he's been better recently, has had a terrible season. That's number three. Justin Verlander's inability to be anywhere close to what he was a year ago in winning the Cy Young. Max Scherzer, 
biggest games of the year, he's come up small. Like those are five things. If you separate those individually, the depth starting pitchers, Edwin Diaz's injury and the impact that's had on the bullpen, and then Carrasco, Verlander, and Scherzer specifically. I think all those five issues I just mentioned, I'd put it above the offense. And that's not to say the offense is perfect. I got him at number seven. Number six is Buck. All right, number six is Buck. I'll skip Buck. Let me get to the offense. The offense has been inconsistent. There have been games. There have been multiple games where you sit back, you look at this lineup, and say, you know what? They could score runs. Lindor's having a great year. Alonzo made 50 home runs. Brandon Nimmo's on base a ton. Oh, my God, we got something with Francisco Alvarez. Brett Beatty has had his moments, but still, you can see the potential he has. Flashes of the old Starling Marte. And you look at this lineup, and it's not the problem. So I have him seventh. Like, all my issues with this team. Defense, too, I should probably put above it. I think I'd put the defense above the offense too. I, th- I think I've got the offense now down to eight, Pete. I, I put, okay, so my order for one, two, three, it's definitely Billy. Second is Scherzer. Third is a combined Buck and the defense because fundamentals were a key thing in 2022 and they have been thrown to the wayside. It has been awful, awful. Uh, you know, the base running's been terrible. You think that guys are – listen, we lead the league in percentage for stealing. It's incredible. But we still don't steal as much as we can. And we get picked off all the time in certain dumb areas. Again, like we're doing things that aren't smart defensively too. It's just – that's all I think I got to put on Buck for that one. The defensive flaws are Buck. Yeah, no, no. I, I think – interpreting analytics too would have to be on Buck because he's the manager of the team. It feels like the pitch selection at times has been very, very spotty. So you almost have to take the, I don't like to just say analytics because I think it's how it's used sometimes. And it all goes on the manager because ultimately that is the manager. I thought his handling of Mark Vientos was absolutely brutal. I think we were all frustrated early on with the inconsistent playing time of Alvarez, even though that's been fixed. The inconsistent playing time of Brett Beatty, that's been fixed. I think the handling of the bullpen has been very spotty at times, specifically that game against the Phillies a couple of weeks ago where he didn't use David Robertson in the eighth inning, but he had him warming up for potentially the ninth inning after the game was blown. I think Buck's up there. I'd put him sixth, but I think that Most of these issues, and this is my main point to my fellow Met fans on diagnosing why things have been bad, pitching, 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 and pitching before I get to every other issue. Doesn't mean those issues don't exist. Like the offense hasn't been as good as it was last year. Their offense is a slightly below average offensive team. I want to acknowledge that. I don't want to make it seem like I think they're scoring five runs a game. I know they're not. I know they're not. But I think that those other issues around the starting pitching and bullpen is a big problem. The aces have underperformed, and the fallout of not having Edwin Diaz has been devastating to this bullpen. Well, listen, and again, I I don't disagree that Diaz would have definitely lengthened out the bullpen, but there still was always this a, a flaw of after Diaz, after Robertson, Adovino, Raleigh, Raleigh. I mean, there was always a major drop off. 
there was always a major drop off. You could say Drew Smith is in there. You used to you started with the Drew Smith was a reliable guy, but he really was never that reliable guy. He was you know what the circle of trust for for wrong reasons. I understand that there's still a drop off after those two. If you had, I'm not even saying Diaz the same level as last year, but close. And David Robertson having the year he's had, and we know he could pitch in any inning because he's done it throughout his career. I think there's five or six games they win and maybe more, which is crazy. And that's why, look, the whole idea of war is how many wins are added based on that player compared to the average player or the replacement player, as they say. I think it can be wrong so so easily because watching the Mets every day, if you had a top-line closer along with the bullpen they have now, dude, there's like five or six games in the first half to jump out at me that the result may be different on. That would make Edwin Diaz on pace to have like a 12-war season, which is crazy. So, I don't know, man. It's I, it's not an excuse. It's not an excuse because injuries are part of baseball. It's just more of an evaluation on, hey, why have things gone so badly? Yeah, not having one of the best closers in baseball to go along with David Robertson, who's had a great year, uh, has hurt this team. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now you mentioned offense. You put them on the lower part of your list of flaws of the Mets. If you had to individualize it, who's having the worst offensive season for you? Who's been the Not major cause? Close. Not Jeff even McNeil? close. There is one guy. Not even close. Jeff McNeil. And a lot of this is expectations. Starling Marte. It's Starling Marte by a mile and a half. Not even close. Who would be? Who's close? You giving me a look, Pete? I'm Lord. saying Jeff, Jeff no, no, Jeff McNeil. Jeff McNeil yeah, is, yeah, is, good. is the guy good. that true. I keep on looking at and saying, the guy just signed the contract. He was just won a batting title and has completely cracked the bed. Now, we're not talking about power numbers here at all. We're talking about a guy who just gets on base and finds it with his bat. That's the thing he does well. Now, is it the shift? We don't know. I don't really know. I don't look at those metrics at all. But whatever it is, the slap hitting has not worked the season for him. And it's just no, a you're struggle. Right. You're right. Here are the, the numbers just to put them right next to each other. Jeff McNeil, 252. Starling Marte, 256. Starling Marte on base, 309. Jeff McNeil, 329. OPS, Jeff McNeil, 657. Starling Marte, 644. It's a These numbers are identical, by the way. Like crazy how close they are. McNeil uh, has three home runs and 26 RBIs. Marte has five home runs and 28 RBIs. The only significant difference is stolen bases. Marte has stolen 23 bases. He's having a huge stolen base here. McNeil has only five. So OPS plus, Marte 79, McNeil 84. So it's a little bit better for McNeil. Total bases, 104 for McNeil, 101 for Marte. They're like the same player. They really are. Outside of the stolen bases, which no doubt Marte has a huge edge on, they are a debt. Let me look at war. All right, that, that'll really help us out here. 
Uh, who do you think has a higher war, if you had to guess? I'm thinking Marte because of these. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know war well enough. <laughs> Hold on a second. I don't even see Starlink Marte on the list. I got to confirm exist. he's around. Oh, no. Jeff McNeil has a one. Now, he's a one war. Hey. Uh, there's a lot of guys ahead of him on this team. Verlander, Pham, Alvarez, Scherzer, Robertson, Alonzo, Senga, Nimmo, and Lindor. I cannot find Starling Marte on this list. Oh, here we go. Oh, my God. Starling Marte. See, I win if we go by war. Starling Marte is a minus 0.4. He has a worse war than Omar Narvaez, Daniel Vogelbach, Danny Mendick, Steven Nagosik, Gary Sanchez, Denny Reyes, Zach Muckenhern. Ah, he's been around longer, but he has a minus 0.4 war, which means a- he's so bad, you'd rather have that replacement by your plate instead of him. That is impressive. But what I, what we do – well, listen, this is – it's, no, it's close, Pete. I, I take back the it's not even close. That, that My apologies. Let me, let me tell you something. We could complain about the pitching, but we I think we just cracked the code on why the offense had been struggling. And when we have bad days, yes. we talk about Lindor and Alonzo. It's not really them. It's the, tre- the, the people that set the tone were guys like Marte and McNeil, and they're not doing it. Yeah, you're you're 100% right. If we look at this offense closely and say, okay, we've accepted it's not the number one issue with this team, but it's also not overcoming their flaws pitching-wise, which can happen sometimes with teams. If they're scoring five runs a game, you can overcome the fact that their pitching's been terrible. And you look closer at this lineup and say, okay, why are they below average? Why is this happening? It's those two guys. You know, the the Vogelback thing, yeah, he's been terrible. Yeah, he shouldn't be playing. We talked a lot about that throughout this season. It's the guys with higher expectations. And Jeff McNeil's coming off a batting title. Marte's coming off a great year. We should put that up as a poll. <laughs> Who has had a worse year in your eyes, Starling Marte or Jeff McNeil? Because <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, those numbers were, it's funny, by the way. Their offensive numbers were almost identical, right? Batting average, OPS, home runs, everything was close. And yet war was not even close. McNeil was like, ah, it's not great, but he okay, plus one. Marte is a freaking minus a million. He has just, not had a good defensive year, too, by the way. That's also hurt him probably. Well, it's been he's been terrible in the outfield. And what we said the other day, like he had some random plays gunning out people at second base because he just can't run track down balls anymore I, I don't know what's going on but i'm surprised the stolen bases don't add i guess to war because that's the that's a significant difference too yeah clearly it doesn't by the way <laughs> no. so on this note let's give out our first half bust award and then we'll do some positive scuff because the mvp will be a positive award the one guy right who you look at and say that's my biggest bust of the first half we just made the case for two guys with Jeff McNeil and Starling Marte. Is it either one of those guys or is it somebody else that would take your bust award for the first half of 2023? I, I think there's one person and one person only that deserves it because he makes an impact when he gets, steps on the field. It's Max Scherzer. He has completely screwed the Mets in every big spot possible, like we've said. I think it has to go to him because he's the guy who's got the attitude, who's got the moxie, who, you know, 
brings the high contract who basically brought his not I'm not sorry saying he brought Verlander over but you know he's the one two punch and basically he's been punchless it's a it's a fair choice I get it. He's had a very mixed bag in the first half of the season. They have won more games than they've lost when he's been on the mound. But there's no question. We talked a lot about it on our last edition of the Rico after the Sunday game against the San Diego Padres. Whenever he has been handed the ball in a big spot, he's come up small. My answer, I've gone back and forth about this because I had a few guys that jumped out at me, just not based on pure numbers, but based on kicking the ball moments that have contributed to where they are. Adam Adovino has been on the mound for a lot of bad moments, a lot of walk-off moments, and that's very different than a year ago. Now, I'm not surprised Adam Adovino's taking a step back. I don't think any of us are, but emotionally, Adovino's a guy I was considering. Max Scherzer was a guy I was considering. I shied away from it, not that I don't want to rip him, but I'm talking about bust of bust, and he's had enough positive moments, even though they haven't come in big spots, that I don't hand him the award. Then I thought of the two offensive players we were talking about, Starling Marte and Jeff McNeil. I even gave some thought to Pete Alonso. I mean, Pete's batting average is down at 212. Um, Vogelback I never really considered because a lot of it's expectations. A lot of it's what do you expect. So ultimately, I settled back to what I was talking about earlier with you, and that's Starling Marte. Starling Marte, more than even the offense, has been so bad defensively that he has been a bad baseball player all the way around. And other than the stolen bases, which are nice, I I expected Marte to be cleaned up and healthy at the two surgeries during the offseason and that he was going to have a good year. Maybe not a great year, but a good year. And he's had a bad year. Like the difference between McNeil and Marte is that Buck has felt the need to bench him a lot and say, all right, let me give him a couple days. Let me give him a couple days. Let me give him a day. Let me give him another day. So there are a lot of options, and I think McNeil's a great option. I respect Scherzer. I thought about Adam Adovino. I even thought about Drew Smith. But then I realized, what did we really expect from Drew Smith, like you said earlier? So I'm ultimately going to hand it to Starling Marte for the season he's had. I mean, it's a negative war, Pete. A negative war. There's one other person that we could give it to, but I don't really know because where he was supposed to be uh, spot-wise in the rotation, but he hasn't pitched at all, Jose Quintana. Can you give it to him? Uh, You you could. No, I mean, you could because I think, you know, you ask the Yankee fan about Carlos Rodon, they say, where's he been? We haven't had him. Guy hasn't pitched until he made his debut a couple days ago. So honorable mention for Jose Quintana. I know it's not his own fault because, you know, he didn't cause himself to get hurt necessarily, but still. Yeah, I think he deserves a shot just because, listen, the guy was reliable up until he comes to the Mets. And that's, that's, we need him to be reliable. Come on. He was very reliable. All right, let's hand that a positive award because this is very, very depressing. The first half most valuable player of this team. The guy who you look at and say, oh, my God, if they didn't have him, where would this team be? I'll let you do the honors, Pete. I'm torn because I I really want to give it to one guy. Um, I'm going to give it to Lindor because I do think overall he's been at his position. He's been 
one of the best shortstops in the league. He's one of the better players in the league, even though he gets zero credit. I think that's kind of why I'm pushing towards him. But the the backup to him would be Francisco Alvarez because he's done everything and more that we've been wanting for a catcher. We've been begging for that catcher spot to be highlighted. I mean, he's how many home runs did the catchers hit last year? Seven? He's got 17. (laughs) He's got 17. And his defense is superb. And he's only played like, what, 61 games so far. Yeah, and, and don't leave this out about Alvarez. Some of his home runs have been incredibly big. He hit the game-tying home run against Tampa, three-run home run down to their final out, bottom of the ninth inning back in May. The game-tying home run against Arizona a little over a week ago, down to his final strike. So it's not just the sheer amount of home runs. He's been incredibly clutch. He's won a few games for this team. I think he's he's a good – look, Lindor is – statistically, if we're just going by stats, is far and away the MVP of this team. Like, it's it's not particularly close. Whether you're looking at war, which he's way ahead of everybody else, three and a half war year, next highest is Brandon Nemo at 2-2. So whether you're looking at that, whether you're looking at the home runs and the RBIs, I don't think he's had a great year defensively, personally. But even his OPS, like his OPS, I think, is... Over 800. Finally got it over 800. So for a while, that was sitting in the low sevens, the mid sevens. But 19 home runs, 60 RBIs, a batting average that looks a little bit more reasonable. I He's the statistical answer. But he's not the MVP of this team. There's somebody else. There's somebody else that you did not mention. Because if Lindor isn't on this team, the offense definitely takes a hit. I don't want to act like it's no big deal. Takes a hit. But the starting pitching and the bullpen has still kind of been their biggest issue. So when that's your biggest issue, someone's holding it together. Somebody's the glue of this whole thing. So I want you to imagine for a second that the Mets did not sign David Robertson. He's not on the team. And this entire bullpen features everybody you see, but not David Robertson. Because Adovino is going to be fine. He'll be good. We got Brooks Raley. He's going to be fine. Drew Smith's ready to take another step. If the Mets didn't have David Robertson, they'd be 15 games under 500. He has had an unbelievable season, despite a few weeks ago when he blew that Friday night game against San Francisco. He's got a two ERA. He's saved 13 games. He should have saved more because think about all the situations Buck put him in where he came in in the eighth inning and got big outs in the eighth inning. He has had an unbelievable first half. And because Adam Adovino has not, and Jeff Brigham has not, and Drew Smith has not, and Steven Nagosik has not, and Tommy Hunter has not, and Dominic Leone has not, and John Curtis has not, and Jimmy Yacobonis has not, and Dennis Santana has not, and every other piece of you-know-what who's pitched out of this bullpen has not, David Robertson's 39 innings that he's pitched this season have been so Goddamn important. So I'll give you Lindor. That's the perfect answer. We all get what he's done statistically for this team. I can't argue it. I'm not arguing it. This is not a negative campaign. It's a negative campaign against the rest of this bullpen and how how trashy it's been and how they have needed David Robertson. David Robertson, MVP of the first half of the New York Mets season. I I think that that's definitely the biggest free agent signing, no doubt about it. That was the best move the, the Mets made. 
Um, and you're right, his, his importance, especially with Diaz not being there, he has solidified that. And it's amazing. At one point in time, he statistically was doing better than Diaz was at, at the point in the season last year where he had a stud-like season. David Roberts has been flawless, and you're, you nailed it with that for sure. I, I think he is definitely up there. If it's There's three guys, maybe four if you want to throw Kode Senge, even though I think he's been up and down. Three, there's three guys that definitely have have should be considered, and it's Lindor, Robertson, and uh, and uh, Alvarez. The the award that Kodai Senga wins, and I think he wins it rather easily, is he's the best starting pitcher of the first half of the New York Mets. He's gone out, made every start, even if they've pushed him back, <laughs> even if they've, and that's not him. So I don't put that on him. Even if they're saying, "Hey, go take seven days off," Kodai Senga has made sixteen starts which is, I think, equal to Max Scherzer because Max has made 16 as well. So they both made 16 starts. And guess what? Kodai Senga's has thrown more innings. So as careful as they may have wanted to be with him, he has pitched almost the same amount of innings as Max. I think it's like an inning or two more. He has struck out more guys than Max. He's also walked a lot more guys. That's been his biggest issue. But he has a 3.31 ERA. And the Mets have, you know, won games when he's been on the mound. So I think if you're looking at starting pitchers, Kodai Senk has been their best starter. And if I would have said that at the beginning of the year, I think we would have had a mixed reaction to it. One breath would have been like, wow, that's great. He's awesome. But then that also would have meant that Verlander and Scherzer haven't pitched well enough. And they haven't. You know, Max has an ERA over four. Verlander has a 3-6 ERA. He's been very up and down. Kodai Senk has been their most consistent starting pitcher, no doubt. Yeah, I have to agree. Which, and the other thing too is, like you said, it's like it's not even that you look at Senga and you look at like that high whip that he has, even though it's dropped a little bit, and you're like, he's the, the ace of the staff right now. He with those numbers, with a lot of walk, the walks that he has, it's not, it's not good. Like he has solidified. He's been allowed to go deeper too. Like the, the other day when eight innings was just fantastic because of the rest, but it's just not, it's not ideal. It's not ideal, I, and I don't know how you're going to be able to to justify what they're going to do going forward in the next couple because, of years. Because I don't view Kodai Senga's first half as it's all going to be downhill from here or this is who he is. I don't think we should make the assumption because he's coming from Japan that first time around the league is going to be the best of Kodai Senga and he'll never get better because you Darvish has been in the league for a decade and he's gotten better in a lot of ways. So I'm encouraged by Senga. I think there have been enough signs from him that he can be a lot better than this. I mean, I agree with you about the walks. I agree with you about the traffic that's on the bases. Uh, I agree that eventually you're going to have to pitch more and more and more. Not that it's got to be on four days rest every time out because there's enough off days where you could finagle it around. But I'm encouraged by him. And he's the one guy in this rotation who could be here for a long time because Verlander and Scherzer aren't. Quintana's probably not. Carrasco's not. You know, David Peterson is certainly making a bid to kind of re-enter the discussion with the way he's thrown in his last three starts. But I'm very encouraged by Kodai Seng. And I think overall he's had a good first half. Like I think if you would have given me these numbers in March, I would have said, cool, I'm good with it. No question. The only thing is, the only other way that I could justify it is if you actually stick to or go to the six-man rotation, which before the season started, we we're like, oh, they have so many guys. They can go to six-man rotation. We're like, they might have – do they have enough for a four-man rotation? And that's That's been the issue right now. They're, you're, you're talking about all those other guys that are gone in the next couple of years. You don't have enough to fill up five. Yeah, I think now they do, though. 
I think right now, coming out of the second half of this season, Verlander, Scherzer, clearly in the rotation. Kodai Senga, clearly in the rotation. Carlos Carrasco and David Peterson have both pitched better in their last few starts. And now you've got Quintana. So do the math. That gets you to six guys. Because if Quintana's in this rotation, which he is, second half of the year, who's the guy you would take out? Like, do you just send David Peterson back down and say, hey, thanks for the three starts. You're going back to AAA, or do you ride a little bit more to see what else he's got? I, I mean, Peterson's on the cusp for me right now. If you sent him down, I wouldn't have any any gripes with that, personally speaking. Well, it's the it's the easiest of the options because they're not sending Carrasco to the bullpen. You know, they're not releasing him. I guess they could trade one of their starting pitchers if they're looking to begin the sell process. But I'm not opposed to going six man. I'm not. Now I made a list, Pete. And I'm depressed looking at this list. We did this a lot last year, the first ever year of the Rico, where we would keep track of the best wins and the worst losses of the year. And at the end of the year, we kind of knew, okay, these were the best wins. These were the worst losses. They didn't have a lot of bad losses last year till the very end. So I made a list of the best wins of the year and the worst losses of the year. I tried to do a five, just a five, like a top five. The losses I came up with, let me see, two, four, six, eight. I came up with 11. (laughs) 11 losses. And I know that it can't be 11. I got to cut it down. So I'm going to do my best to cut down these losses. And you'll remember all these games. And you tell me which is the worst of the worst. Are you ready? Go. Let's go. I'm down. (laughs) All right. April 5th in Milwaukee. Garrett Mitchell, game-winning home run against Adam Adovino. The Mets had a 6-4 to lead in the fifth inning. Okay, we got that one. May 27th in Colorado. The Mets are down 6 nothing. They rally. They take a 7-6 lead in the seventh. They lose the game 10-7. Then we got June 3rd against Toronto. This is a this could sneakily be the number one loss of the year. It was right as the Mets season was about to spiral, and we didn't even know it. Francisco Lindor can't make a defensive play up one nothing allows the Blue Jays to come back and tie it. This is June 3rd against Toronto. Buck Showalter doesn't walk Vladimir Guerrero Jr. with Kevin Biggio on deck. Vlad gets the game-winning hit. Mets lose to Toronto 2-1. to one. You got the three games in Atlanta. I mean, really, you could take your pick, but I think the ultimate was the finale of that series where they lost 13-10-10. and 10. They led 9-5 to five in the fifth. They led 10-6 to six in the sixth. They led 10-7 to seven in the eighth. And Ozzie Albies hit the game-winning walk-off three-run home run in the bottom of the 10th. We got that one. We got June 13th against the Yankees. Max Scherzer has a 5-1 to lead, and he blows it. And then the Mets blow numerous scoring opportunities, including a big one in the eighth inning. They lose 7-6. Then you got June 25th in Philadelphia. Mets blow a 6-3 lead in the eighth. Buck Showalter has no idea how to use his bullpen. Mets lose to the Phillies 7-6. Then you've got June 29th against Milwaukee. Mets lose 3-2. Starling, it was the Starling Marte game. He grounds into a double play with the bases loaded, and then he strikes out to end the game on three pitches that weren't even close. And then you got the Friday game against the Giants, June 30th, when David Robertson gives up the game-winning home run to Patrick Bailey in the eighth inning. Those are all the brutal losses. I, I may have missed a few, but that's a lot of them. Of the ones I picked, or one I forgot, which one takes the cake as the worst loss of the first half? I think the worst one is the Robertson one because 
that was the the guy that you least had expected it to come from. Like other times you're like, oh, okay, I guess. But that moment right there killed more than anything else. That was like you we everything we could have asked for and more, we did. And we still screwed up. I think that along with the Guerrero Jr., like you said, I think that's up there as a sneaky one as well. One and two. Yeah, I oh boy, I was battling with this one. I think the last game in Atlanta is my winner. You get swept by the Braves, the ultimate indignity of being swept by Atlanta. You have a four-run lead in the fifth. You have a four-run lead in the sixth. You have a three-run lead in the eighth inning, and you lose 13-10. And that whole game, it felt like you were waiting for the inevitable. Like you're sitting there waiting for how are they going to blow this game? I'm looking back at my scorecard from this game. I want to cry. I'm just looking looking at this whole thing. They score five runs in the second inning against Spencer Strada. They've beaten the crap out of him. They were up eight to five, nine to five, nine six, ten six, ten seven, and then just they freaking implode. They blow the game. David Robertson gives up a game tying home run to Orlando Arcia with one out and nobody on. How disgusting is that? Yuck. You got Drew Smith giving up a two run home run to Travis Darno that made it a 10 9 game. You have the Mets doing nothing in the 10th inning, and then Albies hitting the grand, uh, the game winning three run home run. It sent the Mets to 30 and 33. It sent them eight and a half games out of first place. It pretty much ended the divisional race. And really, now the spiral was already going on because that was their sixth straight loss. They had gotten swept by Toronto and then they went to Atlanta. But I think that one takes the cake. The Philly one's up there too. The June 25th game against the Phillies is up there. I get your point about Robertson and how it came out of nowhere. I think I was numb by that point. Like, I think I was just, yeah, we're done. I mean, okay, we suck. What more can we see? So I'm going Atlanta June 8th, the wrapper-upper. Because also, let's not forget, they blew a three-run lead in game one. They blew a three-run lead in game two. They blew a four-run lead in game three. And you know what else about that? You know what else about that game, Pete? What's that? Remember, that was the game that made me go so crazy. I was calling everybody a piece of crap. Oh. Piece of craps. Piece of that craps. Is. Piece of craps. They are. Piece of craps. <laughs> they are. What can I tell you? But, but the pitching performance is a piece of craps, not the human being. Just of remember course. That. Of course. <laughs> All right. Let's get to the wins because there were some good wins this season, despite being, you know, six games under 500. Here are the ones I pulled as the best wins of the year. April 16th in Oakland. Complete the sweep against the A's. Pete Alonso hit a game-tying home run in the ninth inning with one out. We forget about that. One out, nobody on, down a run. Alonso game-tying home run, and then David Robertson got through the 10th, got through some trouble to complete the sweep. And I remember the Rico we did after that game where we both said it just felt like a loss. It felt like one of those, ah, we won the series, kind of sucks to lose to the A's, but hey, what can you do? And they won that game. And that was really the height of the season. I mean, the Mets were really good in April. (laughs) For a while, they were really good. A few days later also, the day Max Scherzer was ejected, Jimmy Yacobonis comes out of the bullpen and the Mets beat the Dodgers to win that series. I thought that was a great victory. Uh, April 27th against Washington, they avoided getting swept by the Nationals. They blew a four-run lead in the eighth inning, so it felt like it was going to be a devastating loss. And then they rallied to win it in the bottom of the eighth inning. 
So it was more like a salvage victory than anything else. Then you got May 17th. That caused us to do an instant reaction drive home. They were down 5-2 to two to the Tampa Bay Rays in the bottom of the ninth inning, and Francisco Alvarez hit a dramatic game-tying three-run home run. And then to top it all off, Pete Alonzo, with the Mets down by two in the bottom of the 10th inning and one out, hits a game-winning walk-off three-run bomb. So game-tying home run, two outs in the ninth inning by Alvarez, game-winning home run by Pete Alonzo with one out in the bottom of the 10th inning against Tampa, and that led to the hot streak. They won the next day against Tampa. They swept the Cleveland Guardians. They also had a win two nights later against Cleveland when they were down 5 nothing. They were down 7-3. Pete Alonzo hit the game-tying grand slam in that game, and then they eventually won it on a Francisco Lindor RBI single. And in that game, too, they rallied from two down in the bottom of the 10th inning against Cleveland on May 19th. The win against the Yankees when Brandon Nimmo hit the game-winning walk-off home run in the 10th. And then the game from a week ago where Francisco Alvarez hits the game, tying home run, and Mark Hanna gets the game-winning RBI triple against the Diamondbacks. Am I missing anything, or of those, best win of the year, Pete? Yeah, I think you, you nailed it. There's not many. I mean, I, that might be all the wins they had this season, to be honest with you. I mean, it's so minimal. But uh, I, there's, it's a, I don't want to say it's a tie because you got to choose one. I think the most exciting win was the Tampa Bay game because there were so many ups and downs to that. And then a, a close second is the July 5th game with Alvarez because Cody Senga pitched perfectly and we're sitting there. Well, besides the one mistake, and we think that, that this game is just, again, here we go again, another decent game, but no one could hit. And Alvarez with the last strike ties it up and they find a way to win that game. Incredible. But I think the Tampa Bay game is, edges it because of the ups and downs. I'm with you. Those are the two games that jumped out at me. Um, the third one I want to throw in there is the Cleveland game because it was two days after the Rays comeback, and they were down 5 nothing in this game. And it felt like, all right, they're going to lose. And they're down 7-3 in the seventh inning, and you've got the Alonzo Grand Slam where he almost falls all over himself, and then rallying in the tenth inning the way they did. Alvarez actually got the game-tying hit there too. Uh, with two outs, which we should not forget about. Two outs, bottom of the 10th inning, down by one against Emmanuel Classe, 0-2 in the count. It's a ground ball, base hit past third, and then Lindor got the game winner two batters later. Um, I kind of lean towards Tampa because I was there. And I don't want that to be the reason I pick it, but I was in the building. It was electric. It was amazing. I was not there for the comeback on Friday against Cleveland. But I, sometimes I think, Kind of like the Atlanta game. What made the Atlanta loss so bad in game three was that I felt like I was watching a replay of game one and two. So when something really bad happens and then it happens again, it's almost worse. It's why I think the 2015 World Series is more painful to me than 2000. Obviously, the Yankees being, you know, blood rivals and your neighbors, you would think makes it worse. But what made it worse is that I felt like I was watching it again. So to me, what made the Brave game the worst is that it felt like I was watching it again. My whole point of saying this is what made the Cleveland win maybe better than the Tampa win is that I couldn't believe I was watching it again. Like the opposite. I I couldn't believe. Are they really going to rally again two days later? They're going to come back against one of the best closers in baseball. Francisco Alvarez is going to get a game-tying hit behind in the count 0-2. 
So I, I don't know. The more I think about it, maybe that May 19th game against Cleveland. I, I think if this season turns, and it looked like it was turning when they had that comeback against Arizona, the back-to-back losses to end the first half kind of spoil it. But if this season turns, I think we may look back at the July 5th game as the game that turned the season. We're not going to do that with those games in May because they had June. <laughs> because they had the, the worst June ever. So it's tough to look at a win in May and say, ah, oh, that's the win that turned their season around because it didn't. So I think that the history of this season may give us a different result on how we feel about the best win of the year. I, I agree. And also just to go back to the Tampa game too, that was a really youthful day with Vientos getting a base hit, Alvarez getting a home run. So that made that a little bit more special for some of us because we've been clamoring for the young kids to be called up. But you're right. The July – listen, recent recency bias. That's what it comes down to. And we, that's what's been the most recent memory in our head is that that moment could turn things around. So I said on the last Rico that we did, I'd like to see this team get to 500 by August 1st. The more math you do, the more you realize that's probably not happening because they have to go 11 and four in their next 15 games. And that would get them to one game above 500 by August 1st. I think the real question is going to be where do they have to be standings wise for this team to buy, sell, or do nothing? And I'll start by saying this, Pete. I do not see a scenario where they buy. Like, I don't see it. I I just, I think the only buying they would do would be paying for guys, kind of like they did with uh, the acquisition of, uh, what's his name, of uh, Trevor uh, Gott. Trevor Gott. Trevor Gott. My apologies. I'm sorry to the Gott family. (laughs) Name a name, bitch. Uh, (laughs) The acquisition of Trevor Gott. I think those are the kinds of moves they're going to make. I see no scenario where they're buying like real rentals because I just don't think there's enough time to make up enough ground where Steve Cohen and Billy Apple are going to say, sure, go all in. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. I I see if anything, the only – there's two scenarios. It's staying still or trading away guys like Mark Hanna, David Robertson, Tommy Pham. Hopefully his injury is not too bad and they can actually get something for him if that's what they choose to do. And I just want to preface that by saying, preface what I'm saying right now is, I'm not saying the season is completely done. I still feel like there's opportunity for this team to turn things around. I just know that they're not going to be actively sell, uh, buying. That just that, it, and regardless, it's par- partly because I don't think they're going to be able to make that splash they need anyway. And there just isn't enough time, and I don't think there's going to be enough players out there, like you said. Um, there's a difference though between selling where you're done and selling where you're like, yeah, we still have a shot. David Robertson being sold means you're done. Means you're done. And I said it earlier is the MVP of the team in the first half. Like you trade David Robertson, you're saying we got we're done. We're out. You sell Carlos Carrasco, that's not giving up. Because you can rationalize, well, I got Verlander, I got Scherzer, I got Quintana coming back, Peterson's look good, Senga's an all-star, I'm fine. Now, I'm not saying there's much of a market for Carlos Carrasco, and I think that's part of the problem. 
when we talk about the idea of selling, they have 15 games before the trade deadline, 15 games before August 1st. I just don't know. There's definitely not enough that could happen that would get you into the race enough to say, let's buy. Is there enough to happen where you sell? Yeah. I mean, if you're sitting 12 games out of a wild card spot, what are you doing? But even if you decide to sell, I don't know if there's much worth it because as down as we are on Max Scherzer, to pay off most of his contract to get back a B-level prospect feels like a really bad decision. It doesn't feel worth it. It doesn't. And that's what it comes down to with a lot of these guys. Like, unless you're getting something worth it, why am I doing it? Like, I may as well just keep them on the team because they may be a part of my team next year. Well, I mean, like a guy like Omar Narvaez, you just spent, you got two years for him, right? He's been injured for most of it. Is he valuable somewhere? Possibly. Will you get a better prospect back if you pay for next year too? But how much and, – and again, I think that Steve Cohen said he doesn't care. He'll pay for everything. But there's only so many catches you can pay for in a season. <laughs> they already pay McCann, Navarez, Nitto. I mean, geez. The Orioles are having a great year. So the joke is, ah, look, James McCann. Have you seen James McCann's numbers in Baltimore? I don't recall how, oh, how I, bad I got, I, For anyone who hasn't seen him, I'll, I'll read them to you because they will make you laugh. Uh, sometimes you trade someone away. And they 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 make you pay. Look, I mean, Travis Darno has become a really good Major League Baseball player after they got rid of him. James McCann this season is hitting 186, a 546 OPS with three home runs and eight RBIs. For context, last year he had a batting average that was nine points better and an OPS that's basically the same. So he has repeated pretty much what he's done last year in Baltimore, and he stinks. So I don't know if that makes anybody feel better, but you know what made me feel better? And it was like torture porn to the greatest. It was, uh, I saw someone <laughs> post and took the time to make a two and a half minute video of him grounding into double plays last year <laughs> as a Met. It was just, it was incredible. It was, it, I watched every minute. I watched it twice. <laughs> if there is one huge, huge positive from 2023's first half, is that last year we spent a year watching James McCann, Tomas Nito, and a dash of Patrick Mazika behind the plate. And this season we're watching Francisco Alvarez. So that is, uh, that's as much of an upgrade as one can get. So at least we appreciate that. And we appreciate you. We appreciate you downloading and listening. Uh, definitely email the pod anytime you have a thought, the Rico B at gmail.com and your thoughts on MVP of the first half, on bust of the first half, and on the best wins and losses. Maybe we missed one. I doubt it, but maybe we did. You can always email the pod. We'll read it the next time around the RicoB at gmail.com as we get ready for the second half of the season beginning on Friday night at City Field. Obviously, we'll have pods over the weekend wrapping up the three-game series and maybe even a drive home. You never know. We appreciate you listening to the All-Star Break Edition of Rico Brody. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronya podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times.